ESPN Radio. Here we go. Jalen Brown to the baseline with six against Dragic. Pass to Smart. Smart dribbles inside the arc to Tatum. Layup's good at the horn. Boston wins it. First thing that came to my mind was how much time they're going to have left. But, you know, just happened so fast. But we'll take it. They still sting, you know, even though we know it's a series and move past it. But, you know, it's going to be good to look at the game and see where we can get better. ESPN Radio. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Candy on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and ESPN+. Plus. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Hit us up on Twitter at AmberW790 and at ChrisCandy99. And as always, tap in on the Candy call-in line, 888-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. The NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tonight as the Celtics host the Nets in Game 2. Presented by Indeed, coverage begins at 6.30 Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. And Amber, that's where I want to start with tonight's NBA matchups, the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets. We saw a lot of drama play out in game one, right down to the final buzzer with Jason Tatum getting that layup to vault the Celtics to a game one win. But we also saw the Boston Celtics fans giving Kyrie Irving a piece of their mind and continuing to razz him, so much so that Kyrie responded in kind with a lot of obscene gestures, and the NBA decided to step in and fine Kyrie Irving to the tune of $50,000 for the various birds that he flipped to the Boston Celtics crowd. So my question to you is, the drama from the Boston Celtics fans and the Kyrie Irving response to it, is that going to potentially impact what we see from Kyrie and the Brooklyn Nets in Game 2? No, I don't think that it's going to have an impact on the series. But I was surprised that it got to Kyrie as much as it did. And I guess it didn't get to him in terms of his game because his game was phenomenal. But it seemed to get to him in terms of garnering a reaction to him multiple times in the game. And I was a little surprised by that because we knew that that Boston fan base was going to give it to Kyrie. That Boston fan base hates Kyrie. I mean, it's a very passionate fan base. They loved him when he was with them. And now that he's against them, they hate him. And that's kind of how it goes when we're talking about sports it's been a a very you know it's an adversarial relationship with the fan base there and it's kind of funny because Kyrie didn't really do anything to Boston per se I mean he didn't choose the Celtics right he got traded there and then he left in free agency he got a bag from Brooklyn and he got to team up with one of his best friends in Kevin Durant so I don't know if he really did anything to Boston but it doesn't matter if he did anything to Boston or not Chris because it's sports and if you ain't with us you're against us And that's essentially the position of the Boston Celtics fan. I think from just an NBA fan perspective, as somebody who has no stake in the game, it made things a lot more fun and a lot more entertaining. Like, I want that kind of very passionate environment, as long as we keep it a little clean, kids. That very passionate environment, it makes the game more fun. It was a heck of a game to watch as an NBA fan. But in fact, in terms of actually impacting the series moving forward, I don't think that that adversarial environment is much of a distraction for Kyrie you saw him pull through just fine in terms of his game well did he pull through just fine though because on that final possession that wasn't great from Kyrie pulling his best curly Neal impression and then handing the ball to Kevin Durant as the shot clock was winding down like a grenade after he pulled the pin I I just don't understand it that was an awful offensive possession that the Brooklyn Nets had at the end of the game unless we also not forget he's the guy that Jason Tatum blew past laying the ball up for the game winner 
So we talk about the crowd not affecting Kyrie Irving's performance. Yeah, he dropped 39 points, and he was efficient in doing so shooting from the field. But when it came down to making the critical plays that ultimately determined the outcome, Kyrie Irving came up small, as did Kevin Durant. Now, I do think that Kevin Durant getting back on track in Game 2 is far more important than the heckling that Kyrie Irving is experiencing from the Boston Celtics crowd. But my only question is, with this crowd living rent-free in Kyrie Irving's head, well, matter of fact, check that, Amber. It's not rent-free because Kyrie Irving paid $50,000. So Kyrie <laughs> paying fifty grand for the Boston Celtics fans to live in his head, I'm wondering if that affects how he approaches the game. Does he choose to be more aggressive and thereby taking opportunities away from Kevin Durant in game two? Because we both agree, that's the guy that's got to get on track in order for the Brooklyn Nets to get back in this series. Because the last thing you want to do is, if you're Brooklyn, is have Kevin Durant have another so-so game and then go back to Brooklyn down 0-2 against one of the best defensive teams in all of basketball and having to win four of the next five games in order to advance to round two. You can't be in that situation if you're the Brooklyn Nets. I'm not going to say that game two is a must-win for Brooklyn, but it feels like a can't-lose. I don't. I wouldn't say it's a must win for Brooklyn because this Boston Celtics team is a very good team, and we knew that they were going to put up a big fight here. I mean, they are the much higher seated team, uh, unless we forget that here, Chris Ganty, because I do feel like for some reason all the pressure is on the seventh seed here in the Brooklyn Nets, which is pretty remarkable when we're talking about a Celtics team that should have very high expectations and was defensively elite in the second half of the season. I think defensively the best team in the NBA in the second half of the season but Kyrie Irving was plenty aggressive in game one putting up 39 where KD only put up 20 that's funny that only put up 23 but he only put up 23 I mean KD had a pretty pedestrian game by Kevin Durant standards they're going to need more from KD like you said I mean that's really the key here to winning uh, game two it's not so much Kyrie now I'm not saying Kyrie was flawless I just don't think that he caught got caught flat-footed on that final drive from Jason Tatum where he goes to win the game I don't think that had anything to do with with the Boston crowd. Like, I'm not willing to give the crowd that kind of credit, frankly. I think that was just a mental error by Kyrie in that moment. But otherwise, Kyrie was aggressive. He certainly was offensively very aggressive, and he had a pretty good game. Otherwise, it's Kevin Durant that they're going to need more from. Like, he is the key, and and they're going to get it. Chris, he's not going to come out and give us the same game he gave us in game one. He's going to be extra motivated here in game two. And in order for Brooklyn to compete in this series they're going to need all of it from Kevin Durant that they can get but they only lost this game by one point on a relatively like air quotes bad game from Kevin Durant and so that's why I still have Brooklyn winning this series well we know Kevin Durant has definitely heard it from the crowd and being heckled by a fan base that used to root for him so let's take a listen on what he thinks about the Kyrie Irving Boston Celtics fan saga take a listen Everybody got different moves. Some days he might be up for it, some days he might not. But he understands what this job entails. You know, we understand what uh, this situation is. He might not be in the mood for it next game. Who knows? You know, so it's just a failed thing. You never know what may trigger you in the moment. Somebody say something to get you to react. You know, but NBA crowds in the playoffs tend to try to pick at players, especially ones that that played for their team previously. So. We all understand that stuff. Kyrie's reaction was his reaction. We all still behind that. I feel him exactly what he said. 
the same energy you get, they giving off to him, he gonna give it right back. And he played that way, so um, I think it's all in the game. I mean, they come for their experience of watching the game. And you might have to get something back from one of the players if you say something. That's just the nature of the beast now. Is it all in the game, though? I mean, I, we're talking about the same guy that says he just wants to go out there and hoop. So I don't know if this is all a part of the game. But I'll say this, Amber. In the NFL, we got a saying amongst players and amongst coaches. you got to know your personnel. And it's probably true across all sports when you say that. It's clear that Kevin Durant knows his personnel because he's talking about his teammate in Kyrie Irving and somebody that's, a, that's supposed to be a really good friend of his. You just never know what mood Kyrie Irving is going to be in. And you can't anticipate it. And that wild card, that unpredictable element, is why I can't have any confidence in the Brooklyn Nets going into game two or for the Brooklyn Nets throughout the entirety of this series. Just because from a consistency standpoint, I know what I'm getting from the Boston Celtics. I know what I'm getting from Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, all of the other role players. I know exactly what I'm going to get from them. I know exactly what I'm going to get from Ime Udoka, their head coach. I have no idea what I'm going to get from Kyrie Irving. I have no idea what I'm going to get from Steve Nash. And I have no idea what I'm going to get from the role players from the Brooklyn Nets. So, yeah, I'm a little bit concerned for a team in Brooklyn who, you know, had one of his one of their two superstars have an off night, and then the rest of the supporting cast seemingly didn't come to the party. So, yeah, I'm worried about Brooklyn in game two, and I'm not willing to assign any degree of success to Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, or anybody on that team. That first half of that soundbite sounded like KD wanted to say exactly what you just said. Like, you never really know what we're going to get from Kyrie. Like, that's what I felt like he was alluding to. Like, you don't know what's going to be But isn't it true, though? But isn't it true, though, Amber? game to game. Well, but of course Amber, it's it true. Though? And then well, in the back of the fight, he's like, we stand behind him. I get it. But that first, he set it up very much like, we don't know. We don't know what Kyrie we're going to get next game or what he's going to be triggered by. But the fact remains, though, Chris, we still got a very, very good game on the court from Kyrie. Yes, he should not have been uh, doing the antics and engaging with the crowd in the way that he was. He gets paid many millions of dollars not to do that. And of course, his purse is a little lighter with a $50,000 fine, but not very much lighter based on how much money he makes. But I will say that the game itself, I think, still spoke for itself. And the fact that KD didn't have a very good game and they only lost by one point. So you told me all the problems Brooklyn had. They barely, barely lost that game if it wasn't for a last second play they would not have lost that game I think that bodes well for them frankly moving forward well as we mentioned game two is going to be on our air tonight game two Boston Celtics Brooklyn Nets coverage starting at 6 30 p.m stay dialed in you don't want to miss it coming up next you don't want to miss Amber Wilson and I talking about the latest in Debo Samuel and why he wants out from the San Francisco 49ers we'll explain you're listening to Amber Wilson Chris Canny ESPN Radio ESPN Radio. Debo Samuel wants to be done with San Francisco. Per our very own Jeff Darlington, he spoke to Debo Samuel and he said that he has asked the 49ers to trade him. We are smelling trouble for the San Francisco <laughs> 49ers because we got the reports that they were willing to pay him and maybe Debo was like, nah, I'm good. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Candy on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. And Amber... We got the breaking news as we came on air that Debo Samuel has requested a trade from the San Francisco 49ers organization. So I know how we got here 
is a big part of the storyline, but I actually have to think about the possibilities for Debo Samuel and for the San Francisco 49ers moving forward because we're a week away from the NFL draft, and we've seen that organizations, when they can't come to terms with young quality players that want new contracts, that the time that they usually move move them is before the draft. So I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of activity with the way that the wide receiver market has skyrocketed this offseason. We're not only talking about Debo Samuel. There's been speculation about DK Metcalf. A.J. Brown is not showing up for offseason workouts. Terry McLaurin has said he'll show up, but he's not doing any practices on the field. So there are a lot of wide receivers that are going into their final years of their rookie contracts that want to get paid the bag. And Debo Samuel seemed like he's escalated things with the 49ers. So just moving this thing forward, do you think that there's a real possibility that Debo gets moved on draft night? It's like, Oprah, you get a car, you get a car. It's like if you're a wide receiver in the NFL, you get a bag, you get a bag, you get a bag, right? I mean, that's where we're at right now with the wide receiver market. And Debo Samuel is just the latest. And we all knew this was coming because we knew Debo heading into the final year of a rookie contract was going to want to get paid. And we all know what these receivers are out here getting paid like. And he's such a versatile talent that, of course, there's going to be a huge market for him if he doesn't want to stay in San Francisco. Now, just because he's asking for a trade doesn't mean he's going to get traded of Mm. course it is only April so there is that component to this story where is this just a negotiating tactic by Debo how much does he really want out of San Francisco him right now not showing up to off-season workouts means nothing to me when we are in April right I mean talk to me when we get closer to training camp and get closer to the season right now it could be a whole lot of talk he's removed San Francisco from his social media right he's deleted some of the photos of him and a 49ers jersey because that's what the kids do these days but maybe all of that just means that the 49ers weren't willing to step up to the table yet at the price tag that he wants to be paid at and we did have on Nick Wagner earlier in the show who covers the San Francisco 49ers he told us with the 49ers normally they take their time they wait till after the draft they wait till they sort things out with free agents and they really take their time before they deal with these sorts of extensions and maybe Debo because he's seeing Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill and Stephon Diggs and he's seeing everybody get the bag, doesn't want to be patient and doesn't want San Francisco to take its time. So this is what he's doing to put some pressure on them. Although we have heard reports that the 49ers were willing to pay him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're willing to pay him what he wants to be paid. Yeah, we'll give you some money. We're not going to give you what Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill got. And there are reports out there saying that Debo Samuel wants to be the highest paid non-quarterback. But Amber, you mentioned us having Nick Wagner, ESPN 49ers reporter, on our show earlier. Take a listen to what he had to say about how we got to this place with Debo and the 49ers contract negotiations breaking down. It seems like Debo Samuel's upset with a couple of things. First of all, I think he would like to be paid sooner than later. And if you look at the way the 49ers have done business with their stars in their rookie contracts as they go into that last year, they usually do the other things first. They do free agency. They do the draft. Then they sign the draft class. And then right before training camp hits, you can look at George Kittle and Fred Warner over the last couple of years getting big deals right before camp starts. And so it takes a little bit of patience. And I'm not sure Debo Samuel has the patience that the 49ers need him to have in this 
this situation. And the other thing that has come up and has come out today, and some people have said it, is that Debo Samuel wasn't thrilled with all the usage that he was getting last year as a running back. And, and there's reasons for that, of course. Part of that being it could take a toll on his career, his longevity, his earning power, all of those types of things. And it's interesting that that is kind of coming out now because Debo Samuel all through last year was asked over and over again whether he was okay playing running back, and he never seemed to have an issue with it. Yeah, Amber, I don't think you want to have that out there when you're trying to get paid. The versatility is your dominant trait if you're Debo Samuel. That's your biggest selling point. So why would you want that out there for public consumption for teams to see when you tell them you're not interested in playing running back when we know that adds so much value to you as a player? Yeah, if you're just a pure receiver, then you're not going to be as coveted and quite as valuable. But again, this could just be a negotiation tactic where his agent is going to the front office and saying, Debo plays running back so much. We know what that can do to a person's body. We know that shortens an NFL career. We know the wear and tear that that's going to put on him. And because of that, he needs to be compensated at a certain level or because he is a running back in addition to a receiver. And he just wants to be out here as a receiver, but if you guys want him to play running back as well, well, then he should be paid even more than Tyreek Hill because Tyreek Hill is not here playing running back. And so those are the sorts of things where I don't know what to believe in this situation. I don't know if it's Debo actually not wanting to be utilized in the way the 49ers have been utilizing him. You did hear Nick say there that you didn't hear any of these complaints during the season or if it's just that Debo wants to be paid at a certain rate. Yeah, well, here's the thing. We know that Debo Samuel is a very unique talent. When you combine the number of first downs that he accounted for, both as a receiver, as a running back, and as a passer, you get the number of 73, Amber. That would have been good for seventh best in the NFL. And, of course, the list of players that's in front of him is a very distinguished one with names like Cooper Cup and Jonathan Taylor and Stephon Diggs and Tyreek Hill. So that's the company that Debo Samuel is keeping. So there is no doubt that he is deserving of a top-flight wide receiver deal. It's just a matter of whether or not the San Francisco 49ers are going to be willing to pony up the amount of guaranteed money in the overall structure that Debo and his camp would be amenable to. But based on him breaking off contract negotiations – it feels like the initial offer or the initial framework for the 49ers ended up being a slap in the face. So when I look at this move, it doesn't seem as tactical as it does emotional. And I think that's where we're at with Debo Samuel. So it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out over the course of the next week. So we'll keep everybody posted on the latest news and notes regarding the Debo Samuel saga, as well as everything else going up leading up to the NFL draft. But coming up next... How does this wide receiver news impact what we're going to see in the NFL draft? We'll have our very own ESPN NFL draft expert weigh in. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canny, ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and E+. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And Amber, we're about a week away from the NFL draft. And for more on the NFL draft and the prospects that are going to go early We got to bring in our very own ESPN NFL draft analyst, Matt Miller. And Matt, it's always great to have you on the show. And we got to kick it off with the news of the day, which is Debo Samuel requesting a trade from the San Francisco 49ers. Now, he's just one of several wide receivers that have been rumored to want to be on the move because they're in the final year of their contracts and they want contract extensions. Of course, we heard about DK Metcalf. 
People have speculated about A.J. Brown, about Terry McLaurin. How has all the speculation around the wide receivers and the current landscape of the wide receiver marketplace affected what we're going to see early on in the NFL draft next Thursday? Yeah, guys, you know, I I think a lot of it is that we have eight teams that don't have first-round picks, some of those because they've traded for wide receivers, like Tyreek Hill, like Devontae Adams, you know, and and we might see another team, you know, maybe the New York Jets, uh, maybe the Houston Texans traded for one of the three receivers you mentioned, and so I think that's the biggest domino effect. It's not so much that we'll see receivers fall in this draft because of the trades. I think it's more so that the – Teams are willing to give up picks for for veterans. And, you know, the league has changed to where players have power now that they've never had before. And I I have this conversation with fans daily, it feels like, where it's like, guys, the NFL has changed. It's a lot more like the NBA now where Matthew Stafford can say, hey, I'm tired of wasting my career in Detroit. I want out. And he gets traded. Or Devontae Adams can say, my contract's up and I'm not playing on the franchise tag. And he gets traded, you know. So the league has really shifted to where before a guy like Debo Samuel would have said, hey, I don't want to play running back and take a beating and shorten my career for $4 million a year. You have to do something else. And they would have said, too bad. You're under contract for this year, and we'll franchise tag you the next two. But the game has changed so much now that when someone like Debo does speak up and say, not only did I lead the team of receiving, I was dang near the leading leading rusher last year you got to either pay me like that or send me somewhere where they'll value me, and, and teams actually have to listen now. It's pretty wild what's happening here with the receiver market, Matt. Uh, this is the draft, though, of the edge rusher, and we had on earlier in the show Jermaine Johnson the second of uh, Florida State's D-end. He is a top draft prospect in this draft. So a bit of a self-indulgent question here. If you guys missed our interview with him earlier, you can check out the podcast. But Matt, give us your scouting report on Jermaine Johnson. Do you expect him to go in the top 10? Top 10 is very, very likely. I think it depends on what happens with the three guys who are kind of consensus ranked ahead of him with Aiden Hutchinson, Trevon Walker, and Kayvon Thibodeau. If they go in the top three picks, Jermaine might go in the top eight, right? He could definitely fly up. If they don't go super early, I can't see him getting past the Minnesota Vikings at 12. He's from Eden Prairie, so kind of a local guy to the Vikings. They have a need at defensive end, and he is truly one of the better stories in this draft. Uh, Went to Independence Community College in Kansas, not too far from where I live. Goes to Georgia. They have a great defense there. He's maybe not getting the reps he wants, so he goes to Florida State and really has just a phenomenal breakout season. But then he followed that up with a great week at the Senior Bowl, a great scouting combine performance. So he's a player that, like, you love to see guys bet on themselves. He did that and now is in a position where he'll be a top 15 pick. And a year ago, you know, he was a guy that's like, okay, well, he's in the transfer portal. Let's see what happens. And, and he, he bet on himself, and, and it paid off in a huge way. Matt, we, we saw in Mel Kuyper's most recent mock draft that he had three edge rushers coming off the board with the first three picks in the NFL draft. I know in your top 300 prospects rankings, you have three edge rushers in the top nine picks. Just out of curiosity, how many edge rushers could we see go off the board in the top ten picks? Yeah, I think we can see four. Uh, that's that's really – there's kind of a drop-off after that point from Jermaine Johnson down to guys like George Karloftis from Purdue, Boye Mafe from Minnesota. So we might see four in the top ten, but we might only see like five or six in the first round at all. So I think what's happened this year is those guys 
because there's not a great quarterback. There's some good receivers, but there's not, you know, there's not a Jamar Chase. There's not a Julio Jones. Because of that, the, the edge rushers are number one really good this year, but also the lack of top players at premium positions. The guys that are premium, edge rushers, offensive tackles, are going to go a little bit earlier. Matt Miller, ESPN NFL Draft Analyst on ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. Let's talk about the Carolina Panthers for a second, Matt. They have the sixth pick in this draft, but there are the rumors out there about Baker Mayfield. Maybe now they're interested again. Maybe Baker is interested a little bit as well. How has that affected things in terms of trying to figure out this draft? Yeah, it's made it really difficult, I think, because we we have a kind of this conundrum of Baker Mayfield's out there, Jimmy Garoppolo's available as well. But we have the other side of it where it's like the quarterbacks in this draft, and you don't want to be disrespectful to these young men that are about to have like their moment, right? But they're just not what you would normally consider to be top 10 picks. And I think that's the conundrum right now is Kenny Pickett and Malik Willis have potential, but they're not guys that would normally be top 10 picks. And so you look at Carolina, as you mentioned, at six and say, would they be better off with Baker Mayfield or Jimmy Garoppolo? And those guys are not going to cost six overall, right? Like that's probably a mid-round pick at best that you're trading for those players because you're taking on some salary. So I think that's where the Panthers have a really difficult conversation. You know, they tried this last year. They traded a second-round pick for Sam Darnold, and it didn't work out. So you have to go back to the owner and say, hey, we're going to need you to pay another you know, quarterback salary because we missed last year, and we fired our offensive coordinator – but here we are again asking you to pony up to pay Baker Mayfield's salary or pay Jimmy Garoppolo's salary because we haven't been able to really evaluate the quarterback position accurately. And that's, that's a tough spot for Matt Rule to be in. And I think it's why, you know, when we talk about hot seats, his is definitely the hottest right now. Matt, something that typically doesn't work out for NFL teams is when they take running backs in the first round of the NFL draft. Those players typically don't make it to a second contract with those respective teams that drafted them. I see in your top 300 prospects rankings, you got Brees Hall, the do-everything running back out of Iowa State, uh, as the number 24th overall prospect. Do we see a running back taken in the first round in this year's NFL draft? I think we could, Chris, really. Um, Some of it is just because of that it's not the, the deepest draft we've ever seen, right? And then some of it is because I think a lot like when Kansas City took Clyde Edwards-Alaire in 2020, it's like, all right, it's not the greatest value, but we have a couple teams at the end of round one that they might be a running back away, and that's the Buffalo Bills and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, Tampa did bring back Leonard Fournette, but they lost Ronald Jones. So, like, they need someone to kind of work in concert with, with Lenny. And with Buffalo, like, they've tried the middle round thing, you know, it just hasn't worked. And so they're a team that when you have Josh Allen, when you have Stephon Diggs, all the weapons that they have, it's like, gosh, what if we had a running back? What if we had a guy back there that could be a Jonathan Taylor? You know, what, what does that make this offense look like? If we can, we know we can score, but what if we can now run the ball with a lead? How dangerous does that make us? And, you know, Zach Moss hasn't been that guy. Devin Singletary hasn't been that guy. So it wouldn't shock me if we saw Buffalo just say, hey, like we're going to take a running back and he is a three-down player. He could be a feature back, and we might run him into the ground for five or six years with a franchise tag and then move on. But we feel like those six years are worth the first-round pick. Well, Matt, we appreciate a few minutes of your time. Thanks for jumping on with us and helping us paint the picture on the NFL draft just a week away. Talk to you again soon, my friend. You bet, guys. Thank you. All right, that's ESPN draft analyst Matt Miller jumping on ESPN Radio. Coming up next... How will Kyrie and the Nets respond in game two to the Boston fans? We'll have the latest 
as somebody that's there will set the scene. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canny, ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio. And Amber, with all of these talks about wide receivers trying to get the bag, there is a wide receiver that wants his money, and after the season he just put up, deservedly so. Cooper Cup, the Los Angeles Rams do-everything wide receiver, said on Tuesday that he's not looking to reset the wide receiver market that's already exploded this offseason, but he would like his contract addressed in a way that seems fair for all involved. Now, Amber, he can say whatever he wants, but the fact that he's talking about a contract lets you know that he sees everything that's going on in the wide receiver marketplace, and Cooper Cup wants his fair share. He wants his fair share, and nobody can blame him for wanting his fair share. Right now, he is grossly underpaid at something like $14 million. The Rams have a heck of a deal right now for a player who's coming off of a season where he was named the Super Bowl MVP and the Offensive Player of the Year. So that man deserves his money, Chris Canty. But this feels like a very different situation to me than we were just talking about with Debo Samuel, where Cup is saying all the right things, and whether we believe him or not, whether he's being a little too PC, or not saying, hey, I don't want to reset the market and I'm not concerned about what anybody else is making. What it does tell me is that there's a better dialogue between him and his team. It does tell me that Cooper Cup seemingly wants to stay with the Rams and why wouldn't he? He's in a position to win Super Bowls there and win Super Bowl MVPs there. So from that perspective, it feels like they're going to get something done here with this Rams team. We know this Rams team somehow finds money growing on trees. I don't know. The Rams Rams is the only team in the NFL without a salary cap, Chris Canty. I don't know how they keep doing it. I don't know how they keep coming up with money to pay these guys, but I have no doubt they will find a way to pay this guy because they should. Yeah, they're going to find a way to pay Cooper Cup. As you mentioned, Like the, the stats are undeniable. He's second in the NFL in scrimmage yards. He was first in yards after catch. So this guy is a monster when it comes to being a weapon that his quarterback can rely on. And yeah, I, I'm all about Cooper Cup getting his bag. But he's not going to get his money before Aaron Donald gets his. Let's be honest, Amber. That's the priority if you're Les Snead and Sean McVay. Because this is a guy that was talking about stepping away from the game after they won the Super Bowl. There were rumors before the Super Bowl that he would retire if they would win. So I think that's a ploy by Aaron Donald to make sure that he gets his fair share. Because let's face it, he might be the most valuable non-quarterback in the NFL. And quite frankly... He's the one that should have got Super Bowl MVP if you look at how the second half of that game played itself out. So no shade to Cooper Cup, but he's just going to have to wait his turn because Aaron Donald is just that dude. But this is a sign of the time, Amber, when wide receivers are telling teams they want to get paid and they want to get paid now. I'm not waiting until my deal's up two years from now. I want my money, and I want it now. ESPN Radio. Game two tonight between the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets is the one that everybody is here to see. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and E+. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Tap in on the Canny call-in line, 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. We want to hear from you on who you think will take game two. Are you rolling with the C's, or do you think the Nets, Kyrie Irving, and KD bounce back we're waiting to hear from our play-by-play guy Mark Kestisher who is going to be on the call for game two tonight but Amber what are you expecting to see from the Brooklyn Nets in game two what adjustments you think Steve Nash and company make in order to try to give themselves a chance to get a split up in TD Garden Well, the adjustment they need to make is KD just playing better and and doing Kevin Durant things. And I don't want to 
make it sound like KD went out and played terribly the other night because he did not. But KD had a pedestrian, a poor performance for Kevin Durant, right, Chris? And you need an MVP-like performance from Kevin Durant in order to win this series. And frankly, I think you're going to get one tonight because I think he is going to bring that extra motivation. We know about all the distraction there with Kyrie and the Boston fans and the emotions that were running high. But even with a pedestrian poor performance from KD, they still only lost that game by one point on the last second shot by Jason Tatum. So if Kevin Durant steps up even a little bit more than this feels like a Boston win, even in a very uh, passionate environment, so to speak, there with the fans engaging with Kyrie Irving. And Amber, for more on that, we're going to go out to the candy call in line to bring on ESPN Radio play-by-play announcer Mark Kestisher, who's going to be on the call for Celtics-Nets Game 2 of this series. And Mark, earlier in the show, I said that this is not a must-win game for the Brooklyn Nets, but this is a can't-lose game, especially when you consider how good Boston has been this season. Would you characterize this matchup, this particular game in the series, as such? It's first of all uh, good to chat with you. I, I miss our time calling NFL games together. Amber, good being with you as well. Uh, yeah, it's not a must win, but 2-0, you know, going home, um, it's not a traditional 2-7. So when you get like a 7 or an 8 seed and you're down 0-2, it's virtually over. I don't think anyone's come back from that that low of a seed since they expanded the playoffs in 1984. But, you know, the Brooklyn Nets aren't that traditional team so you know are they done no winning four out of five is that difficult yes against this Boston team uh, you know the Nets know they can compete with the Celtics we saw that if uh, Boston doesn't execute late you know it's a completely different narrative right now I think we all expect Kevin Durant uh, you know to not miss 15 shots although if you look back at his last three playoff games they he's actually missed 15 at least in all three of those. So, you know, a lot of storylines coming into this one. I'm going to steal a line from our uh, studio guy, Kevin Winter, talking about, you know, the fans and Kyrie. That was an Easter Sunday afternoon crowd on Sunday. This will be a Wednesday night crowd here in Boston. So uh, I'm fascinated to see how it all turns out um, and if, you know, we have a 1-1 because, as they say, a series really doesn't begin until the road team wins a game. Uh, certainly a passionate crowd, to put it mildly there, uh, Kesty. And I wonder from Kevin Durant, because you mentioned the 15 shots or whatever it was that he had, a bit of a pedestrian performance from KD. So what do you expect from him tonight, and what do they need from him in order to win this series? I think everyone's expecting a big number. You know, everyone's asking me, what do you think Kevin Durant's going to do tonight? And my first reaction was 40. And they're like, no, <laughs> we think he might need 50. I think the big thing is his adjustment. In the first half, you know, whenever he would dribble toward the lane, they were swarming bodies at him. There's so much length on this Celtics defense. They were getting in passing lanes. They were poking the ball away. He had six turnovers. So I think just, you know, his footwork is going to be an adjustment that he can make. Maybe he doesn't need to put the ball on the deck. You know, he's so tall and long and can shoot over guys, receive the ball, turn, go up, and score. So, you know, that's that's an adjustment he can make. We just spoke with Ime Udoka, the head coach of the Celtics. Obviously, they want to keep the physical play on Durant. Uh, they'd really frustrated him, specifically in that first half and uh, for most of the game, quite frankly. So I think everyone expects uh, Durant to have a big bounce back. He always has in his career. I think there's only three instances in the last decade, and that goes back to his Warriors years, 
and his Oklahoma City Thunder years where he had less than 25 points in back-to-back games. So historically, we expect something big here tonight. Talking with ESPN Radio play-by-play announcer Mark Kestisher on ESPN Radio. And Mark, one of the things that seemingly is under the radar is the Boston Celtics, in all of the conversation about this series, we're talking about Kyrie and the fans. We're talking about Kevin Durant's poor game one performance. It feels like the Boston Celtics are flying under the radar, even though they're the two seed and they're the ones coming into this postseason with huge expectations given their standings in the conference. What's happening on that front in terms of the pressure that Boston is feeling in this particular matchup with the Brooklyn Nets? Chris, I think it's a good point. They were under the radar for three months because this was a team that was under 500 on January 23rd. And then, you know, the race in the top four uh, was going right down to the stretch. And if you weren't paying attention, Boston at one time was 11th in the conference. They end up second on the tiebreaker. They play outstanding defense. You know, the Robert Williams injury took a little starch out of it, I think. And everyone talks about Milwaukee as the defending champs and Philadelphia if Um, You know, Harden lives up to how he played when he first came over in the trade with Embiid. Miami had the number one record. They're running under the radar, probably even more than Boston is. But you're right. And if they don't get that, you know, game winner on Sunday, then all the doubts and pressure is on Boston. But they got it. They have home court. Even without Robert Williams, they have guys who have stepped up. They reacquired Daniel Tice. That was a huge move. Knowing, not knowing that Williams was going to go down. And Al Horford in his second tour here in Boston, now 35 years of age, has totally rejuvenated his career this year. And he had a 20-15 and 15 the other night. So I think your premise is right. They've been overlooked. I don't think for long, though, especially if they uh, get through this series. Well, Mark, we appreciate you jumping on with us. Enjoy the call on tonight's game. We'll talk to you again soon, friend. Canty, we better have us some NFL lined up soon. I better be seeing you this fall. Absolutely. Let's do it. I'm all about it. That is ESPN Radio play-by-play announcer Mark Kestisher, who is on the call for Game 2 up in Boston, which you can catch right here on our air starting at 6.30 Eastern. Coming up, who puts more of a fight tonight, the Bulls or the Raptors? Amber Wilson and I will chime in. You're listening to ESPN Radio back after this.